0: Congratulations. We have made it to the end. This is the 10th and final week of the Letters to the Americans, and this week we are reading a chapter, or a portion of a chapter, from Esau McCully's Reading While Black. Chapter 2. Freedom is no fear. The New Testament and a theology of policing. I'll tell you what freedom is. Freedom is no fear. Nina Simone shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just Genesis 15 excuse me Genesis 1825 By the time I was sixteen, I had no doubt that football would be my path to college. The letters and phone calls from college coaches had just begun, but my school had a rich tradition of sending its better athletes to university. All I had to do was perform on the field and stay out of trouble. At this point in high school I had developed a sufficient buffer between myself and the violence of my neighborhood. I knew how to navigate the parties and neighborhoods of Northwest Huntsville. People knew me not as a criminal, but as someone it wasn't wise to bother. My grades were good enough to make getting into college a foregone conclusion. Therefore, when i had speak of trouble, I did not have in mind my own behavior. I was afraid of running into problems with the police, that I might find myself in an encounter that spun out of control. Why did I have to fear? Or why did I have this fear? I grew up in the aftermath of the Rodney King incident, which, in the era before cell phone videos, was an unheard of piece of evidence that confirmed black fears. Rodney King had led the police on a high-speed chase through Los Angeles. Eventually, the police got him to stop, and after he exited the car, he was savagely beaten by four officers. The entire country saw that video and the pictures of King's bruised body. But King's beating did not create the fear. Most of us had our own stories, which might not have been as dramatic, but which still left lasting impressions. Driving while black was not a problem that we imagined. By my junior year then, I was wary. To prevent any problems, I developed a ritual whenever I went out with my friends. I volunteered to drive because I did not smoke or drink. Before getting into my car, I made sure that none of us had anything legal. No drugs, alcohol, or weapons entered my vehicle. As much as it depended on me, I had accounted for everything. We all traveled clean and I drove. This seemed like a safe path through my last years of high school and into university. One night, we had plans to go to the mall and later a party in the same part of town. As you can imagine, the main road leading to the mall was well traveled by many a teen on Friday night. We decided to stop at a gas station on that road and fill up before continuing on with the night's festivities. While at the station, we saw some of our friends who were heading in the same direction. We told them about the party and encouraged them to meet us there. After I finished filling up the tank, I got ready to leave. Then I noticed that a black SUV had pulled up quite close to my car. I thought that was odd. He would get his gas soon enough. Then another SUV drove up to my left, and another parked in front of my car. I thought I was being carjacked, but who would carjack someone less than a mile from the mall at a well-led gas station? The mystery was solved when the officers came filing out of the SUV. They told us to put our hands where they could see them. I remember my friend saying that he wasn't putting his hands anywhere. Right then, my future flashed before my eyes. Had all my planning been for naught? Would my dreams unravel at the local stop and shop in exchange for a bag of chips and a few gallons of fuel? I told my friend to be quiet and do as the officer said. We complied. Then they told us to get out of the car. We complied. I asked the officer what was going on. Why had we we been detained? He said that this gas station was a known drug spot and that he had seen us conducting a drug deal. I couldn't help but think that it was also a well-known place to acquire gas. But what could we do? He asked for all our licenses. Those that had them gave them up without protest. The officers then proceeded to check us in the car for anything illegal. I felt powerless and angry. The whole thing lasted less than 20 minutes. They found nothing. I expected some apology for what had just happened to us, some further explanation of what we had done other than being young and black and in a gas station. Instead, they gave us back our licenses and told us we were free to go. After it was over, I no longer had any desire to go to the mall. Instead, I took everyone home and called it a night. The next morning, I couldn't help but reflect on how close I came to losing it all. The football scholarship, the path out of poverty, the chance to help my family. I had been briefly terrorized. I wish that I could say that this was the only or the most egregious thing that happened to me. By my count, I had been stopped somewhere between seven and ten times on the road or for existing in public spaces for no crime other than being black. These words may make it seem as if I dislike police officers. I do not. I have known many good police officers. I recognize the dangers that they face and the difficulties inherent in the vocation they choose, but a difficult job does not absolve one of criticism. It puts the criticism in a wider framework. That wider framework must also include, if we are going to be complete, the history of the police's interaction with people of color in this country." If the difficulty of the job provides context, so does the historic legal enforcement of racial discrimination and the terror visited on black bodies. We must tell the whole story, as difficult as that telling might be. Therefore, the question of how the police treats its citizens is a pressing issue in the lives of black people. Surprisingly, despite the ongoing concerns of African-Americans, this subject has seen very little reflection in the standard works on New Testament ethics. Is the Guild correct? Is the issue of the state's treatment of its citizens a subject foreign to the New Testament, such that black folk looking to these texts will find little relief? The New Testament provides the beginning of a Christian theology of policing in two places, which we will consider in turn. First, I will examine the much maligned and misunderstood Romans 13, 1-7. I will argue that scholars neglect the overlapping role of soldier and police officer in ancient Rome. This neglect has led them to ignore the fact that Paul's words on the sword and their link to the will and limits of the state bear directly on the question of how the state polices its residents. Therefore, Romans 13, through 7 is a foundational passage for constructing a New Testament theology of policing. After establishing its importance, I will argue that Romans 13, through 7 has a lot more going on than advocating for a passive populace that pays its taxes and defers to those in power. I will maintain that Romans 13, 1-7 asserts the sovereignty of God over the state. Paul says that the state's policing duties should never be a terror to those who are innocent. Building upon the insights on the link between the soldier and the police officer, we will turn our attention to the ministry of John the Baptist, as it is recorded in Luke's Gospel. There we will see him calling on the soldiers-slash-law-enforcement officers to do their job with integrity. I will close with a brief analysis of the implications of our exegesis for Christian engagement with the question of policing. The issue is bigger than you think. Romans 13, 1 and 2 and the problem of evil rulers. Romans 13, 1 and 2 does not, on first glance, seem to be a productive place to begin to speak about the limits that God places on the treatment of his citizens. It reads, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. The focus of this passage appears to be individuals, not the state. Furthermore, Paul tells those individuals to submit to those in authority because they have been placed there by God. Those who resist these authorities run the risk, then, of opposing God's will, Paul's lack of qualification here has been a cause of concern for many. Do we not have a case in which the proper Christian response to mistreatment is not revolution but obedience under suffering, in the hopes of an eschatological or end-times writings of wrongs? Christian eschatology is a much maligned area of reflection. The hope of new creation is often portrayed as an opiate lulling us into complacency. Eschatology, however, need not be dismissed as some small thing. The coming kingdom remains a central pillar of theology that not only gives us hope for the future, but also negates the power of those who can kill the body but do no more. Nonetheless, I think that Paul has more in mind here than some flattened, some sub-biblical form of meekness. We need to recognize that critics of Paul in Romans 13, 1 and 2 have not gone far enough. The problem is not that, according to their interpretation, Paul forbids rebelling against wicked rulers. The problem is the wicked rulers themselves. The issue, I want to suggest, is not merely exegetical, it is also philosophical. The path forward is not only found in a new exegetical insight, a new twist on a verb here or a noun there. The way beyond the impasse is to pursue the logic of the text to the end. Therefore, we must ask why a good God, who is sovereign over all, would allow evil rulers to come to power. Stated differently, the question is not about our submission to wicked rulers, but their very existence. The criticism of Paul, then, is theodicy, or the problem of evil, in a different form. Asking what we are to do when those tasked with governing us use that power to do harm is simply another way of asking why there is harm at all. One response to the problem of evil has been to posit the cross and resurrection as God's answer to the question. We do not worship a God who sits apart, but who enters human pain and redeems it from within. The Christian is not given a series of deductive proofs that solve the problem of evil to our satisfaction. We are given an act of love that woos us and we know that this wooing isn't a false promise because the resurrection proves that god is sovereign over life and death our focus on eschatology in any case is not unique the nihilist meaning one who believes that everything is ultimately meaningless is just as driven by their eschatology it's just that his or hers is devoid of hope let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die but we have drifted from paul does the apostle have anything to say about how the state treats its citizens and our public response to that treatment that goes beyond submission yes i suggest that paul's words about submission to governing authorities must be read in light of four realities number 1 paul's use of pharaoh in romans as an example of god removing authorities through human agents shows that his prohibition against resistance is not absolute two the wider old testament testifies to god's use of human agents to take down corrupt governments three In light of the first two propositions, we can affirm that God is active through human beings, even when we can't discern the exact role we play. And four, therefore, Paul's words should be seen as more of a limit on our discernment than on God's activities. First, Paul and Pharaoh. Romans 9.17 reads, For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for this very purpose of showing my power in you, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God, according to the apostle, is glorified through his judgment of wicked kings. God removed Pharaoh because of his unjust and tyrannical rule. Exodus makes it clear that it is because of the economic exploitation, enslavement, and harsh treatment of Israel. Exodus 3 verses 7 through 10. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians. And to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land a land flowing with milk and honey to the country of the canaanites the hittites the amorites the perizzites the hivites and the jebusites the cry of the israelites has now come to me i have also seen how the egyptians oppress them so come i will send you to pharaoh to bring my people the israelites out of egypt pharaoh's destruction as it was presented in the book of exodus is largely the work of god but god acts through moses Paul alludes to this story to speak about God's sovereignty in Romans. Therefore, Paul knew and discussed in Romans an example of someone who did not merely submit to their authorities, namely Moses. This means that in Romans 13, 1 and 2, Paul either has some qualification in mind or he considers, considered Moses sinful. Furthermore, we have numerous examples of Old Testament passages where God uses human beings to bring down governments for their wickedness. Based on these two realities, I believe that Paul does not simply delay the writing of wrongs until the eschaton, or the end times. Instead, Paul shows rightful skepticism about our ability to discern how we are functioning in God's wider purposes. Stated differently, God brings his judgment against corrupt institutions through humans in his own time, and we are not given insight into our proper role in such matters. Moses might point the way forward. In his younger days, he sees the oppression of his fellow Israelites in response by killing an Egyptian. We know that moses had properly diagnosed the problem of israel's slavery but his solution was ill conceived later god in his own time does bring lasting liberation to his people and links it to proper worship and the transformation of the nation i maintain then that we read romans 13 1 and 2 as a statement about the sovereignty of god and the limits of human discernment we are allowed to discern and even condemn evil like the prophets did we are allowed to resist like the hebrew midwives daniel shadrach meshach and abednego Nonetheless, we cannot claim divine sanction for the proper timing and method of solving the problems we discern. Again, this does not place limits on our ability as Christians to call evil by its name, but it does obligate us to be willing to suffer the consequences of living in a fallen world. We recognize that the state has been given its responsibilities. We are not anarchists, but we do recognize that the state is, in fact, under God. The state has duties, and we can hold them accountable, even if it means... That we suffer for doing so peacefully this suffering is only futile if the resurrection is a lie if the resurrection is true and the christian stakes his or her entire existence on its truthfulness then our peaceful witness testifies to a new and better way of being human that transcends the endless cycle of violence paul then in romans 13:1 and 2 is not far from jesus who tells his disciples that those who live by the sword die by it Policing the Empire Although Paul's worst individuals have received the bulk of attention for exegetes, meaning those who interpret the Bible, it is his words concerning the state that point the way to a Christian theology of policing. Paul grounds his call for submission to the state with a description of what the state should do. Romans 13, 3 and 4 For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive its approval. For it is God's servant for your good but if you do what is wrong, you should be afraid, for the authority does not bear the sword in vain. Two exegetical insights and one historical note will be crucial to our interpretation of this passage. First, the historical note. Many have noted that bear the sword has connections to the Roman military. The sword refers to the actions of the military at the behest of those in authority. However, Furman has argued persuasively that the rise of the empire carried with it an increase in the policing activities of soldiers, Therefore, I contend that Paul's words here can be seen as a comment on the role the police officers should play in the body politic. To this historical note, we add two exegetical insights that should not be too controversial. First, in Romans thirteen three and 4, it is the state's attitude, not the soldier slash officer as a vocation, that stands at the center of Paul's concerns. Stated differently, Paul recognizes that the state has a tremendous influence on how the soldier slash officer treats its citizens. Thus, if there is to be reform, it must be structural and not merely individualistic. This is grounds in a democracy for a structural advocacy on behalf of the powerless. Second, Paul says that the government should not be a source of fear for the innocent. This problem of innocent fearfulness continues to plague encounters between black persons and law enforcement. Again, Paul's words provide guidance on the shape reform must take. The Roman Christian and the Soldier slash Officer. In order to understand Paul's words about the sword, we need to do a few things. First, we must define what we mean by police. Then, we need to show that in Paul's time, soldiers performed a policing role by outlining the ways in which they policed the empire. This will lead to some practical thoughts on how Roman Christians might have encountered the sword in referring to roman soldiers as police i do not mean that they function like modern police whose sole job is to investigate crimes make arrests and testify in court when i refer to police officers i have in mind any organized unit of men under official command whose duties involved maintaining public order and state control in a civilian setting did roman soldiers perform this policing role yes in 48 bc octavian who would become the emperor augustus defeated mark antony and cleopatra this made him the sole power throughout the roman world one of the first th- first things he did was transform the roman militia into a standing army this standing army was responsible for maintaining public order part of this maintenance of public order included guard duty calming public disturbance and crime investigation in rome itself octavian created the praetorian guard whose responsibility included the policing duties mentioned above and seeing to the safety of octavian and his family the best estimates maintain that there were nine cohorts of the guard, with between 500 and 1,000 soldiers in each cohort. These soldier police officers were separated from their legions outside the city and lived in and among the people. They did not wear military uniforms and were often paid better than normal soldiers. Alongside his guard, Octavian set up the Vigiles, a group whose initial mandate was to prevent arson and put out fires. Their role expanded, however, to include investigating petty crimes. When combined, the Vigiles and the Praetorian Guard were about 10,000 people charged with maintaining order in the city. This is roughly one officer per 100 people. Therefore, Paul's words about the sword would not have been an abstraction. Roman Christians would have come into contact, knowingly or not, with the policing power of the state on a regular basis. We have established that the closest thing to a police force in rome would be the soldiers who had been stationed in the city for the express purpose of maintaining order we have also shown that they would not be a peripheral part of a roman christian's life but that a roman christian could expect to interact with the officer soldiers quite regularly we have evidence of this regularity in the new testament itself which periodically depicts interactions with soldiers can we say more where exactly might a christian encounter this police force Understanding how the Christian might encounter this police force is crucial if we want to understand the actual interactions between Christians and the sword. Augustus justified his rule by lauding the peace that he brought to the empire. In his famous book *Res Gestae*, he relies on an ancient legend about the closing of the gate of Janus Corinius to demonstrate the unprecedented peace he brought to Rome. He said, "Our ancestors wanted Janus Corinius to be closed when, throughout all the rule of the Roman people, by land and sea." peace had been secured through victory. Although before my birth it had been closed twice in all unrecorded in memory from the founding of the city, the Senate voted three times in my principate that it be closed. This peace was not merely the result of defeating enemies abroad. It was also about safety at home. Part of the safety cr- entailed the curtailing of crime in the city. This involved setting up cohorts in troubled parts of the city and investigating crimes. These soldiers also worked alongside the vigilees who functioned as something close to a night watch. They also oversaw gladiator events and other major festivals in the the city's life. Another neglected aspect of the soldiers' role was assisting in tax collection. Tax collectors in Rome were known for their corruption, often overcharging the people and demanding bribes. The soldiers in imperial Rome often functioned as the muscle behind the threats of these tax collectors. There is one more group that we must mention to round out our discussion of the policing in Rome, the the aediles and their staff. In the days of the Republic, their job was to care for the temples and some of the public works of the city. Eventually, this role expanded to may include maintaining public order. They also oversaw the markets by making sure the taxes were paid and the scales of the market were just. The oversight of the scales also led merchants to bribe adeles and their staff so that the merchants could cheat their customers. A Roman Christian, then, might encounter the police if they found themselves in the wrong part of town late at night, given that we know the early Roman Christians were not, on the whole, rich. Living in the wrong part of of town would have been the daily experience of many. Moreover, they might be questioned by the Vigilees or Octavians' guards simply for living in the neighborhood. They might have been bullied by officers trying to get a few extra dollars when tax collection season came around. Christian shop owners might have been pressured to pay the fee for doing business or risk being beat out by a competitor. Whenever the city was alive with festival and celebration, the Roman Christian might have had to watch out for an anxious officer who was keen to keep said festivities from spiraling out of control. In short, at any moment in the lives of Roman church members, they might come face to face with the state in its sword. Stated differently, the Roman Christian's interaction with the power of the state bears some striking similarities to the potential encounters African Americans might have with the police in our day. Paul, structural reform and the absence of fear. Having sketched the realities of policing in ancient Rome, we can turn to exegesis proper. In Romans 13, 3 and 4, Paul focuses on the authorities, not the officers themselves. He says, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what is good and you will receive its approval. Here Paul recognizes that the soldier's attitude toward the people who reside in the city will, in large part, be determined by those who give the orders. The problem, if there is one, does not reside solely in those who bear the sword, but those who direct it. In other words, Paul does not focus on individual actions, but on power structures. For the American Christian, this means that he or she has to face the fact that our government has crafted laws over the course of centuries, not decades, that were designed to disenfranchise black people. These laws were then enforced by means of the state's power of the sword. Historically in America, the issue has been institutional corporate sin undergirded by the policing power of the state. Why does Paul's focus on structure, or what does Paul's focus on structure, mean for a Christian theology of policing? It means that the same government that created the structures has some responsibility to see those wrongs righted and injustices undone. Furthermore, if the power truly resides with the people in a democratic republic, then the Christian's first responsibility is to make sure that those who direct the sword in our culture direct that sword in ways in keeping with our values. We can and must hold elected officials responsible for the collective actions of the agents of the state who act on our behalf. Furthermore, as participants in a free society, we have the ability to shape public opinion about what crime is and how criminals should be viewed we can create a society where those who are suspected of breaking the law are treated as image-bearers worthy of respect a christian theology of policing then must grow out of christian theology of persons this christian theology of policing must remember that the state is only a steward or caretaker of persons it did not create them and it does not own or define them god is our creator and he will have a word for those who attempt to mar the image of god in any person we are being the Christians God called us to be when we remind the state of the limits of its power. A second series of exegetical insights follow from the first. Paul says that the rulers who control the police are not a terror to those engaged in good conduct. Paul states this as a fact. However, given what we said about, above about God's ability to judge nations and rulers for corrupt practices, we can see that Paul speaks of an ideal. He knows that some rulers are a terror to those who are good, Paul mentioned a ruler, Pharaoh, earlier in Romans that was a terror, and that ruler experienced God's judgment. In Romans thirteen one through 7 then, Paul outlines rulers' responsibilities as God's servants without directly addressing the problem of evil rulers. I contend that in absence of that explanation of Romans thirteen one and 7 we are free to use Paul's reference to Egypt and the wider biblical account to fill in the gap. Now we come to the heart of it. Black hope for policing is not that complicated. Paul articulates that hope quite plainly in Romans 13.4. We want to live free of fear. When I am pulled over for a traffic stop, I am afraid precisely because the police have been a source of terror in my own life and the lives of my people. This terror trickled down from a national government that often viewed our skin as dangerous. As I entered the last years of high school, I was not afraid of doing anything wrong that might cost me a trip to college. If that happened, it would be on me. I could deal with that. But I was afraid of being perceived as a threat, because I could not, in a few tense moments of interaction with law enforcement, argue or wish away centuries of mistrust. I am afraid still, because I worry that my sons or daughters might experience the same terror that marked the life of their father and my ancestors before me. This fear might seem unwarranted to some. I am tempted to list statistics about black folks and our treatment at the hands of the police, but I am skeptical that statistics will convince those hostile to our cause, Furthermore, statistics are unnecessary for those who carry the experience of being black in this country in their hearts. We know, and this book is for us. Paul provides a few starting points on how Christians can think about policing from a biblical theological perspective. He rightly focuses on those who control the sword and not merely the individual. This gives the Christian thinker and advocate the space to think structurally about how a just society should treat its people. Paul also speaks about the absence of fear, a central concern for black folks, Yes, Paul does speak about the Christian's responsibility to the government, though this is fine. We do not want anarchy. We gladly acknowledge the potential goods of government. We also recognize the church's ability to discern evil in government actions, even if we lack the sovereignty over history, to know when God will bring judgment. Nonetheless, we must always remember that Paul's words on submission to government come in the context of a Bible that shows God active in history to bring about his purposes. God lifts up and God tears down. To avoid that tearing down, those who have the task of government must do all in their power to construct a society in which black persons can live and move and work freely.